Welcome to Military Reunion Network Radio. Our podcast is for anyone and everyone that is involved with military reunions. We're so glad you're with us. Today we are jumping back into the archives to re-air a conversation with uh, Lieutenant Joe Tarillo. He was a firefighter in New York City and um, has an amazing uh, story to tell uh, with regards to September 11th. So with that, Joe, welcome to MRN Radio. We are glad you're here. Thank you, thank you, and I'm, uh, you know, I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't say I'm grateful for this opportunity. We are very honored to have you with us. On September 11th, let's start there. Let's let's start with how your day unfolded, and it obviously certainly ended a little bit different than you thought it was, was going to, so let's start there. Well, you know what? My story surrounding September 11th is seems to be very interesting and a very ironic story. I mean... There are many ironic stories that surround that day, happy ones and sad ones, good ones and bad ones. But my particular story is one that people seem to think is the most interesting and ironic story of all. At the sake of being just a very kind of long-winded, because it's important to hear the story, I was actually a firefighter in the firehouse across the street from the Twin Towers. I started there in 1980. And I was there for 16 years. In 1996, I got promoted to lieutenant, and uh, the fire department places you in another firehouse, you know, to start your new career as a supervisor, which is a lieutenant, you know, the first step up the uh, administrative ladder. And shortly after getting promoted to lieutenant, four months after, I got hurt very seriously in a fire trying to rescue a woman right at the crack of midnight of 1996 going into 1997 on New Year's Eve. My left arm was almost completely severed off of my hand trying to rescue this woman mm. and I ended up in the hospital that night. They reattached my thumb and it was a near career and an injury and they had me take a desk job working in headquarters while I recuperated for the next year and I never worked in an office in my life. But they had me work in the office of fire safety education there's a whole group of us that were recuperating from various injuries and illnesses. And because we couldn't work in a firehouse, we'd go out every day, Monday to Friday, to speak to kids in schools about both preventing and surviving a fire. And ironically, eight months into this new assignment, I was named the director of the whole program. Wow. Which was a life-changing event. I mean, I had no office skills. I wasn't a public speaker. I didn't. I wasn't a teacher by trade. I didn't have any college, you know, uh, credits in education. I'm a carpenter, plumber, electrician by trade. So I didn't even know how I was going to fit into this unit of education. And you know, unbelievably, I'm become the director of the program. And and in that new uh, promotion and assignment. I decided we should have a learning center where kids can go on a school trip and really learn about the messages of preventing and surviving fires and very Disney quality in the theatrical kind of venue. And uh, Mayor Giuliani gave me a $3 million budget to take on this project, and I designed the first fire safety learning center in the world. I worked on that project for two years, opened in October 2000, called the Fire Zone. And shortly thereafter, we were nominated for the Theater Award at the Emmys, and we won that coveted award. We were up against Disney and Six Flags and all these other science centers, and we won the award, which was in November of 2001. And then I was working, I was spending my time right after that promoting my new learning center when I got a phone call in January 2001 from a company called Fisher Price Toys. They wanted me to help them design a new action figure 
which would be in addition to their other action figures called rescue heroes that kids love, like a little police officer called Jake Justice, an ambulance attendant called Perry Medic, a lifeguard called Wendy Waters, a mountain climber called Cliff Hanger, a construction <laughs> worker called Jack Hammer. And they want a New York City firefighter to be in addition to their rescue heroes. They're going to call them Billy Blazers. Now, if I help them design it, I'd get a dollar for everyone that was sold around the world. Of course, the money wow. wasn't going to go to me personally. It was going to my education program. So in January 2001, I sat down with the Fisher-Price executives, the artists, illustrators, and their toy designers. And for a whole day, as I was talking about what a firefighter looks like with his firefighting clothing, his air tank, his mask, his tools and equipment, the artists and the illustrators had their iPads and they were drawing with crayons and markers. And at the end of the day, they had this new little action figure all sketched out. Billy Blazes, a New York City firefighter. Well, they took the artwork, they went to the factory, and six months later, they had the first modem prototype which was now July of 2001. And they wanted us to review it. We looked at it. And there were some changes we wanted them to make, which they did. And after they made the changes, which took about two or three weeks, we looked it over again and we didn't go into mass production. Well, they wanted to have a big press conference in New York City. They wanted to introduce the new children's rescue hero in New York, a New York City firefighter, Billy Blazes. And they said, where can we have a press conference? I said, well, why don't we do it at the fire zone? They said, what's that? I said, it's a new children's learning center I co-designed the one Memmy Award for it. They said, where is it? I said, it's in Rockefeller Center. They said, oh, my God, can we really have the press conference there? I said, of course, I'm the director. And they said, oh, my God, this is getting better and better. How apropos to this whole project. We'll introduce the new rescue wheel at the new children's learning center. They said, okay, we know where we're going to do the press conference, but when can we do this? Well, this meeting was in the end of July 2001, and I said, well, let's do it in October. It's Fire Prevention Month. It's the longest-running health initiative in the world. It goes back to 1871 after they rebuilt Chicago after the Great Fire. And he says, oh, that's very, very, you know, it's, it's great. It's a natural tie to the project, but it's too close to the Christmas and holiday season. We want to get Billy Blazes on the market a little bit sooner. I couldn't think of another date you know, in between July and October, that would be appropriate. So I was kind of brainstorming. And I said, you know, 911 is the emergency phone number in New York City. Why don't we have the first ever 911-themed day in New York? And the Fisher-Price executive says, oh, my God, that's a great novel idea. So on 911, September 11, 2001, at 9 o'clock in the morning, all the TV stations were waiting for me in Rockefeller Center in New York City at 9 o'clock to introduce the new children's rescue hero, Billy Blazes, a New York City firefighter. I was on my way to the press conference going from Brooklyn, and which was where headquarters was situated or is situated. I was going over to Brooklyn Bridge into Manhattan when the first plane hit the North Tower about an eighth of a mile away, and now I got to make a big decision. What do I do? Do I continue to Rockefeller Center to the press conference, or do I make my way down to the World Trade Center complex and go to my old firehouse and grab a set of firefighting clothing, take off my dress uniform, and just spring into action, which is obviously what I did. And mm -hmm. I was at the World Trade I was at that firehouse at exactly 9 o'clock in the morning, ripped off my dress uniform, followed a set of firefighting clothing from another fireman who was off duty, Lieutenant Tommy McNamara. I took his helmet, his jacket, his boots, his gloves, his pants, and I ran out of the firehouse. And as I was running past the South Tower, going to the North Tower, which was struck at 8.46 a.m., it was now 9.03, three minutes after I got to the scene, and I heard a noise, and I looked up as I'm running past the South Tower, 
and United Airlines Flight 175 came right over my head. I was the only one underneath that jet, and it slammed into the South Tower, which was now the second building stuck. And the first two things I said to everybody I encountered, police officers and other firefighters and emergency medical technicians, I said, everybody on the top of your buildings are going to die. I knew they couldn't get down, and I knew there was no way we can get to them. And I said, these buildings are going to collapse. And people looked at me like I was crazy, like I, they couldn't understand why I was saying that. After all, how could these buildings collapse? But mm-hmm. nobody knew that I studied structural engineering before I was a firefighter in college. That's what I got my degree in. And two of my professors in college used to take me and the other engineering students on a field trip down to the towers as they were going up because my two professors also worked on the Twin Towers for the concrete contractor. So I studied those buildings in engineering school and then graduate and decide to take a test for the New York City Fire Department. I did so well on the exam, I figured, you know what, I might as well try this out. And that's how I accepted the appointment into the fire department, not really ever intending to do that. And of all 357 firehouses in New York City that they could arbitrarily place me, when I graduated the fire department training academy, they chose the firehouse right across the street from the World Trade Center. So now I'm back as a firefighter protecting them and not an engineering student studying them. But Mm -hmm. on that morning of September 11th, all those days when I was there as an engineering student, all those lessons I learned came back to me, and I knew that that support system of those Twin Towers would not endure that amount of fire and structural damage. To me, it was very obvious, and I just assumed that every fire chief on the scene knew what I knew, but evidently they didn't. And one of my biggest concerns was that I knew we were going to lose a lot of people that day, possibly even myself. I didn't know if I would ever see you know, the following day, September 12th, but I had a job to do. I knew this was going to be bad, and I didn't want to lose the emergency ambulance crews because that would only make it worse. They were setting up a triage area, which is a treatment area in both lobbies of both towers as people were coming down from the floors above. That's where they would get treated, which seemed to be the natural thing to do. But I, I, knowing that the towers are going to collapse, I don't want to lose the ambulance crews. We can't afford to lose them. And I was evacuating them and telling them to go about six blocks away with the ambulance and set up a staging area that we would call them one crew at a time as we needed them. And one crew was giving me a hard time in the South Tower. You know, they're like, who are you? We don't work for you. You got no authority. Get the heck out of here. But I was adamant. I got them out of the South Tower and I got them in the the ambulance and they drove away. And as I was outside the South Tower, heard a rumble in the road. I looked up which was now 9.58 in the morning, 55 minutes after that tower was struck, the building starts collapsing. I said to myself, you idiot, you're the one who knew this building was going to collapse and you put yourself right underneath it. I Mm. figured I had about 10 seconds left to live and I saw a footbridge over the main thoroughfare in front of the World Trade Center. I thought if I could run fast enough and make it underneath that footbridge, maybe they would find a piece of my body to identify for a funeral. And as I started running, the building was coming down like in a pancake top pancake type of collapse, one floor hitting the floor below 110 times, you know, 110 stories, and the air pressure picked me up on my feet, and I was flying through the air. Next thing I know, a piece of steel opened up the whole back of my head, and huge slabs of concrete were just hitting my body, and now I got a fractured skull. My head is split open. All my ribs are broken. My left arm snapped in half. My shoulder is torn. My neck and my spine are crushed. I'm bleeding internally. I'm suffocating, and I'm buried 
in darkness with all these other people who were screaming at the top of their lungs, but we couldn't see each other. We all couldn't move. And after a while, after a while those screams turned into cries, cries into whimpers, whimpers into silence. One by one, they had all died, and I was still alive. Mm. And about 25 minutes later, rescuers came. They were digging, digging, and I was one of the first ones they found. They dug me out, put me on a long spine board, and they ran to the river that separates Manhattan from New Jersey, and that's where boats had come over to get people out of New York. So they had me on the deck of the boat holding my head closed, and they said I was going to die if they couldn't get me to a hospital. And at that point, there was another loud rumble on the wall, and everybody on the boat started screaming, oh, my God, here comes the other tower. Well, now the North Tower collapsed, flew across the street. Millions of shards of glass were raining down on the deck of the boat. Everybody on the deck of the boat jumped overboard into the river, and I was left behind, strapped onto the spine board. And with a lucky swipe of my right index finger, the release belt opened, I just stuck my hand out because I couldn't see anything. My eyes had been so damaged from the dirt and the dust. I felt the doorway, and I jumped into the doorway, not knowing it was the ladder that went 10 feet below into the engine room. So I, go, I ended up diving headfirst into the engine room, and then the North Tower fell on top of the boat, and I was buried a second time. And again, suffocating, and 45 minutes later, to almost about an hour, uh, as I was losing consciousness, People were jumping back on the boat, and somebody came to the engine room and found me, and the boat skipped across the river. I woke up in an operating room, but I didn't know where I was. I was in Jersey City Trauma Center in New Jersey, and my last memory was doctors and nurses. About 15 of them were cutting all of my clothes and my firefighting gear off of me with scissors, and we all write our name on the inside flap of our firefighting code. It's a Thomas McNamara. So I was admitted as Thomas McNamara, and I was declared dead for three days, and on the night of September 11, 2001, when the sun went down, 344 firemen were declared dead. Three days later, one would be found alive, and that would be me, and Billy Blazers would come to represent the other 343 firefighters who made the supreme sacrifice of their life, and now as I travel and tell the story, I tell everybody that I'm going to let them in on a little secret. Superman's not real, Batman and Robin's not real, Spider-Man is not real. The only children's rescue hero that ever came to life was Billy Blazes on the morning of September 11, 2001. Uh, how, how did the next days happen? What were you thinking, you know, when you're, you're what were you thinking when you were down, well, was, when you were buried the first time? Well, what I was thinking was that I said to my, I was actually angry at myself because I'm the one who had all this knowledge, but I didn't capitalize on it. And then I said to myself, you know what? This is the job that you wanted. You always knew that one day something like this could happen, but you never really thought it would. And I had a flashback to the day I was sworn in 20 years before into the New York City Fire Department. I was standing in line with 124 other young kids with short haircuts, suits and ties in front of the mayor of New York City and the fire commissioner. And we raised our right hand, taking the oath of office, vowing that we'd be willing to lay down our life so that somebody else might live in becoming a new fireman in New York City. And I said to myself, my God, you never, ever thought you were going to live up to that vow, but today you are. And I closed my eyes and you know what? I just... At that point, I was in the middle of all these fires, and I just prayed that I would suffocate to death before I burnt to death. And I didn't want to die angry. Uh, I, yet, I said a prayer. I asked God to take care of my family. I said, they're never, ever going to get over this when they get the uh, news 
uh, all their lives are ruined, and I, I, I did this to them. They're never, life is not going to be the same. Holidays are not going to be the same. My brothers and sisters, my wife and kids are not going to accept it. I should just get them through it. And I just says, God, I want to thank you for giving me this career. Uh, I take full responsibility for what's going on. Uh, it's what I wanted. It's what you gave me. And that's just the way things are. Like I said, I just don't even know. I, I don't even know what to say. I think that my, in, in my head, I'm thinking, how do you go from that experience to the hospital? And, you know, they don't know that, that you're alive you know, they, because you're in someone else's uniform for several days. And how do you recover from that? That's a good question. What happened was I, I didn't recover for many years. It took me almost 10 years. What happened was I was very silent about what was going on inside of me. I think I was afraid and I was embarrassed to actually tell people what I was feeling. And I didn't want to verbalize it because I felt if I verbalized it, then it really was true. Uh, people were talking about survivor's guilt, which I had never heard of before September 11th. But I had more than survivor's guilt. I actually had survivor's anger, which meant mm -hmm. that I was actually very angry that I had survived. Because 343 firefighters all marched up to heaven together, Okay with the ultimate honor of leaving this earth. And I couldn't understand why they or God had left me behind and didn't take me in that group. I felt like I wasn't good enough to be with them. And I always thought about Louis Armstrong, you know, one of my favorite musicians and singers, and one of the favorite songs that he sings is When the Saints Go Marching In, you know? Mm -hmm. And I couldn't understand yeah. when the Saints were going marching in, I wanted to be in that number, and I was left behind. And I realized that one day, you know, in the future, I'll pass away like all of us will because nobody escapes this world alive. And I'll leave this world without any fanfare, you know. Not that I was looking for fanfare, but 343 firefighters, many of them personal friends, many of them I knew casually, they all left this earth, you know, with so much dignity and honor and respect. And I just felt like, Maybe they, they didn't think that I, I deserve that. And after about 10 years of going through this deep, dark tunnel, walking through with no light at the end, I started traveling, doing a lot of charity speaking, and then agents uh, from speaking bureaus urged me to jump into the professional side of speaking, and I never thought of doing something like that. And they kind of thought I was a natural, I had a great story to tell. And so when I decided to take up one of the agents and go to a speaking audition, kind of like American Idol for public speakers, from that point on, I was getting a lot, a lot of requests to do public speaking. And no matter where I went, and I've been all around this world, everybody in every one of these events, people who don't even know each other tell me the same exact thing. They say, Joe, God spared your life for a reason. And you want to know why? I'm really believing in that now. And I think my mm -hmm. job now is to tell the story of everybody who died that day and, and, and that will always give them the glory and then to set out on a new mission to try to make our country the reunited States of America and try to resurrect patriotism in everybody that lives in this country and to remind everybody and anybody around the world, okay, that if anybody doesn't think they, that the United States is the greatest country in the world, let me tell you, we're second to no other country. And we owe no excuses to anybody 
in, in any other country or anybody in, in our country that we are proud to be an American. Absolutely. And all I want more than anything is to uh, solidify patriotism in this country and get everybody together and get America back in the center of the pedestal where she belongs because America has been good to every single one of us. They've been good to everybody uh, before us and so many people before us, over 1,343,812 men and women today since the days of George Washington took up arms in the branches of the military service of our country and lay down their lives so that we can have this country what it is today. And I would hope that everybody would you know, feel a moral obligation to leave this country an even better one for our children and our grandchildren. And I know that we have a lot of work ahead of us, but it has to start somewhere. And like I say, you know, non-Fasubius could be moved three inches to the left if everybody just picked up a teaspoon. Exactly, exactly. I, I wanted to ask you one question about, it is, it is so difficult to hear your story and not be impacted. It, it's just by, by what you're sharing and the courage and your strength, um, not only that you exhibited that day, but, but in telling the story again, because it's, it is, it, it's extraordinary. And, um, have have people shared with you how you've expired, inspired them? Have people shared with you, you know, you, you've given me the courage to do something that they didn't otherwise have the courage to do? Yes, absolutely. People tell me that, you know, all the time. I mean, I've been, I've been told, and, and, and I've done hundreds and hundreds of speaking events, you know, both charity and also on the paid side. But I do a lot, a lot of charity. Matter of fact, I just did a big charity event a couple of days ago for a group of doctors and nurses up in Gouverneur, New York, near Canada, that opened up a free clinic to provide free medical care that people couldn't afford it. And they wanted to have a fundraiser and they wanted a guest speaker, but they didn't have enough money to pay a speaker. And I said, well, I'm your man. I'll be there because I really believe in what you're doing. And, you know, in good faith, I wouldn't take any. Matter of fact, it cost me money and travel to do it. But anyway, mm -hmm. so I got to do a lot of that stuff, and people tell me, you know what, we've heard a lot of speakers, but, you know, you're somebody who really leaves an impression. And I tell people, I tell all my speaking agents, look, don't market me as a motivational speaker, which, of course, there's thousands of people out there that believe they are motivational speakers, and they're all very, very good. You know, I, I've, I've been on stage with the, you know, with the best of the best when it comes to speakers, you know, um, make no mistake about that, but... I kind of look at myself as an inspirational speaker or, you know, what I try to do when I meet people and I speak, you know, up on the stage at these huge events is to inspire people to motivate themselves. I really believe all motivation comes from within. Anytime mm -hmm. I've been motivated, okay, I motivated myself, but it took somebody to inspire me. And that's what I think really happens. Yeah, well... Let me just tell you, you're you are inspiring a lot of people today, and and um, I'm right at the top of the list. I want to thank you so much for your time with us today, Joe. I just really, really appreciate it. Would love to keep in touch with you, and um, you know, we have a lot of military reunions that are happening in the in the New York area, and so. It, um, 
we want to we want to let them know that that can they can reach out to you perhaps to to come in and speak with with their reunion or connect with them at their reunion. So how would they find you? Well, you know, I have a website www.joejoetorillo I actually have 36 different speaking topics. I don't think there's any other speaker out there that has that many speaking topics. And typically what happens is I offer a client uh, a menu of those 36 speaking topics and they can pick one or they can pick multiple topics. And I'll take those multiple topics and combine them into one uh, customized presentation for their event so that a client who wants me to speak, okay, I deliver the messages that they need and want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you um, so much. Yeah, people might be interested to know that I was chosen by the Justice Department and the FBI to represent the United States in Guantanamo, Cuba, against the five terrorists who orchestrated 9-11. I can't think of a better representative. I yes, just, I did a I live can't. interview on MSNBC live from the courthouse back to the United States. They can listen to it on the Internet. I'm going to be going back soon. We're wrapping up the pretrial hearings, and we're going to be going into the actual trial. You know, there's a lot, a lot of legalities. I don't even understand it, you know, to be in that courtroom, you know, and the reason why I'm there, well, I was chosen as one of the credible survivors and an eyewitness to the attack and uh, to lend some human emotion to the trial. And for me personally, you know, my agenda being there is to come back and tell the people of the United States that make no mistake, we are given these five individuals who already admitted their guilt, that mm-hmm. we're giving them a trial as fair as anybody would get. And I think that's a true testament, you know, to the integrity of the United States and our people to, to know and to believe and think that we would be willing to do that. And that means a lot to me, as hard yeah. as it is for people to believe. Yeah, it's pretty extraordinary. Um, again, Joe, thank you so much for being with us. Um, I, I look forward to keeping in touch. And, and um, this is it for Reunion Friendly Network Radio. I'm Sharon Danachek, your host. And Joe, thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you next Good, time. Thank you. Thank you again. Take care, everybody. I want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, this archive show is sponsored by the Military Appreciation Channel. You can find them on radioactivebroadcasting.net. Uh, just go to radioactivebroadcasting.net and uh, click on the Military Appreciation Channel for um, some additional stories and uh, amazing conversations with our military and veteran community. Uh, again, this is Sharon Danachek. Thank you so much for joining us on MRN Radio. We will see you next time. Thank you for your service and thank you for your continued volunteerism for our veterans.